Welcome everyone to another episode of the EQ Elevator. And I am uh, thrilled to have another guest and not any guest, a very special guest, Dr. Alexander Stein, who is expertise experienced uh, in when it comes to human behavior, human decision-making. He has a fascinating background, which he will share in the intersection. So he's the founder of Dulles Advisors Consultancy in, based in New York, which he founded just after 9-11. So it's a mission-driven consultancy. I uh, learned about Alexander on LinkedIn, so the power of LinkedIn. I saw one of your podcast episodes or LinkedIn Live with Wiser. So they're also doing amazing work. And I am truly honored that you accepted to be a guest on my podcast, where we use emotional intelligence to build bridges, to shine light on the challenges uh, leaders face. Uh, my focus particularly is in the STEM industry, everything that deals with cyber and digitalization challenges, because we are living in an, uh, another cycle of the digital age, uh, but that's another discussion. So I am honored to have you. And perhaps before we get started, why don't you introduce yourself a bit more and tell uh, our audience more about your mission? I'm honored that you've invited me and it's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. To add to the introduction that you've already provided, it will probably be useful for your listeners to know a bit more about my area of expertise and how that informs the work that Dulles Advisors does. So my background is as a psychoanalyst. And so I come to my work as an advisor and consultant to leaders and organizations through the lens of uh, deep knowledge and clinical experience with patients when I was working in private practice in the contours and vicissitudes of the human mind and all of the ways in which people make different decisions from the ones that they think they're going to or different from the ones they think other people are going to the ways in which people tie their shoelaces together at inopportune moments and the consequences of that and the ways in which uh, the central element of the human person, human decision-making, human emotion, inform everything that happens in the world, whether it's in the digital realm or otherwise. And that the more people who are in positions of influence and responsibility know about themselves and about what people do and why they do it, the better able all the systems are to mitigate unintended consequences and to enhance and optimize the outcomes that they're aiming for. Yes, I thank you for adding that. And I think this is what makes this or what will make this conversation so relevant and exciting is your practical clinical experience. I think especially the danger or we are seeing now on social media, many people are portrayed to be experts or influencers and they are putting out advice. And because of our attention span or because of, and I think maybe we can elaborate on that, our emotion to instant gratification, we follow the advice or we take it as true without understanding that and when it comes to uh, clinical experience, it's so important to listen and take advice or even consider a, a perspective from someone 
who has the actual experience from people who studied it and worked with it, not only in, in, in social media on TikTok. So thank you for adding that. <laughs> yes. And I want to actually start with the challenges. So this podcast, I think, is for a broad audience, but specifically I focus on science, tech, technology, engineering, and math. Why? Because that is my area of experience. I worked at NATO in the, with STEM field. And what I found is that it's be, because engineers, scientists, technicians to cybersecurity, information technologies, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have emotional intelligence, but they're highly technically trained in technical skills. And then when we talk about emotional intelligence, managing our immediate challenges and our emotions, it is a issue when it comes to collaborating effectively, especially when we look at this era now after COVID uh, as well, and what we will go into hybrid working. So I'd love to hear your views. A, what are your views on uh, emotional intelligence and soft skills, which I don't like to use in this industry? And why is it so important to look at emotional intelligence when it comes to behavior, when it comes to leadership, and when it comes to managing the change and uncertainty? with the technological disruption. Thank you for opening up such an important area for discussion. A lighthearted, if not flippant, first response would be, I'm all for it and there should be more of it. The really serious answer that it deserves is that the battle between affect and cognition, between thinking and feeling, is a, a little bit like the nature-nurture debate. As if it's a zero-sum knockdown, and it needs to be one or the other. It is, of course, both. And those isotopes can't be completely isolated, and nor should we be choosing them. So it's so important because in many regards, skill, competency, intellectual pursuits, epistemology, however all important, have been super valued in many respects over the world of emotions, which have been seen in many quarters and certainly in many science fiction accounts that predated AI of the cold, intellectual, stock-like cyborg or the robot who can be devoid of emotionality and therefore have pure, unfettered thought which really discounts, if not eradicate, what it means to be a human being. We just don't think that way. In fact, if you are without emotion, it's a form of psychopathology and not so sure that we really want to have somebody who's making decisions that are uninfluenced and unaffected by emotion to be in charge of things, notwithstanding the mythology otherwise. Our emotional lives, our emotional history inform how we think and where we come from, how we process the world, how we manage or mismanage our emotions inform cognitive processes. And so I, I think a kind of condensed or concise response to your question is that the more people understand about who they are how their emotions affect and influence them, to understand more about what happens to me if this happens, how do I respond in this or that kind of situation, more or less. 
you're enhancing your toolkit for being a better thinker. I, I love that. And I like that you highlighted the word effect, which scientists use to mean feeling. And yeah. I don't know if, and I don't know if Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, who is uh, leading some work on uh, emotional intelligence and who really makes a very clear distinction between effect and emotions, because effect is present in everyone. If we had a bad night of sleep, we are low on energy. So we can feel a bit awry and, and if we don't correlate it back to sleep, we can try to put a narrative around it. But what is interesting is what she talks about is it's also cultural related. When we look, for example, in some countries or even in some families, even I am Mediterranean and I am skilled in emotional intelligence, but I had to learn emotional expression because I grew up with a father, for example, and a mother who did not express their emotions openly and it was seen as taboo. So okay. that is something that I had to, that I, that I actually struggled when it came to the workplace in asserting myself, having boundaries, being too codependent. And I think that is so important to understand first the difference, because if we know an energy there, we need to get more sleep or make sure that optimize our energy levels, but also to understand, as you mentioned, our upbringings and how that influenced what is comfortable for us and what is not comfortable for us. I don't know if you have any insights or, or thoughts on that and how that plays into the workplace. I completely agree with you. And in some respects, it's to the point that I was making or trying to make in terms of understanding how different states can influence them. If you're under-rested, you're going to be grumpy or cranky or, or tempered, or the case may be. And good to know that and not just to act out on people or make rash decisions because you just don't have the bandwidth or the wherewithal or your batteries are low. And culture, of course, is huge, not just family culture, but broader socio-systems. And being brought up in a, a country that values a certain kind of emotional expressivity, but coming from a family that seems to cut against the grain or that somehow contradicts that by valuing depression or avoidance of it creates tension and conflict within us in terms of what's permissible and where and where will who I am be accepted or rejected or what works and what doesn't work. And so every individual finds different solution if there's a problem or in any case find different ways of spreading those needles to make things work as well as they can and when you change your environment if you go to another culture or if you become coupled and go into a different family those things will be the environment will change or when you're working in an organization and you're around people who are behaving in a particular way, whether you're accustomed to it or not, people need to find the way, obviously, to make things work in a social setting. Every organization, every community, every family is a relational ecosystem. And yeah. we're constantly trying to exercise some form of agility within the internal construct that has a kind of intrinsic rigidity sometimes, but in any case, there's a sturdiness to it, right? We all have the kind of emotional skeleton from which we, you know, on which everything else hangs. And updating that can't always be easy. Some people 
are more chameleon-like and they end up losing themselves so that they can assimilate seamlessly, which creates its own inner turmoil in some ways. They, there's some cost to that, even if there's a high payoff. Yeah, that's uh, I have something I resonate with. I'm an HSP, highly sensitive person. Doesn't mean I cry a lot. It just means I'm very sensitive to people's... Uh, to the surroundings around me. And I think the moment I started more finding out who I was and letting go of all the layers, I don't think we're lost. We just need to have a, a less of a distorted version of ourselves and distorted lens and uncovering the real and not be afraid to be our authentic self. And especially when we look at the business world, because now before, especially in the STEM industry, I, I found from my experience, there was a hard line between professional or personal life. You do not bring your personal life necessarily at work. I, even at NATO, remote working was not necessarily welcome. But then pandemic happened and it's shifted everything as such a fast space. But you could see the pressure actually uh, blurring this line and then emotions and our unhealed traumas and, and issues that we haven't dealt with all came to the surface and impacts business life. And I don't know what your experiences in working with leaders on how do leaders navigate that actually, because it's a big shift, especially if you're used. I did a consultancy for a client who said, we have a lot of business intelligence, but I wish we would have more emotional intelligence, but they were uncomfortable with this concept. There's a lot there to unpack the, the division that's placed there between personal and professional life is already a misnomer. There's a long history to it, and the consequences have been nothing but problematic. It creates balkanization that's almost impossible to contend with. It, it valorizes this idea that we're supposed to be a professional self that abandons all, all other features of so-called personal self. It's a confusion that becomes quite difficult, I think, for people to understand what to do with. Now, it is appropriate, of course, to be able to regulate and manage yourself. I think the core idea is sound in terms of you don't want people coming into the office or attending meetings or making impactful decisions on behalf of stakeholders and shareholders as if they were sitting in their living room or being unboundaried and unfiltered and talking about things that are really impertinent and, and ungermane to the setting. However, somehow that got mistranslated into meaning that you're not supposed to be who you are and that you're supposed to segregate off or suppress aspects of who you are because that's so-called personal. And there's that, that creates all kinds of challenges because then people are, are conditioned to suppose that all kinds of things that are going on inside them doesn't even have to rise to the level of early trauma, although that's not a trivial thing, but just various things that are a part of how they think and how they feel and how they respond and how they interact and what their natural tendencies are and what their characterological predispositions are and just a host of things are somehow inappropriate or are getting in the way of being a fine professional. And that's just not the case. In terms of good leaders, 
that in itself is a densely packed phrase, what makes a good leader. And I'm going to skip over that for a second just to try to answer your earlier question, which relates to working with leaders to help them understand more about these kinds of subterranean or interior nuances and details of self. A large distinction between, let's say, CEOs, leaders, people, directors on boards, people who have tremendous amount of power and other people who are in management is, in fact, kind of the scale and scope of influence. When somebody who is in a leadership position, decisions affect many people's lives, their livelihoods, their income, investment can influence society. And so corporate responsibility, their professional responsibility in my view is understanding leadership as an instrument that needs to be used, wielded thoughtfully, mindfully, not just knowledgeably. And the more leaders know about who they are as individuals and the more they understand about the complexity and multidimensional element involved in the psychodynamic of their leadership team and the composition of people on the board, not just the roles and responsibilities of the people they're working with and can contend with those forces with greater fluency and skill, uh, they're enhancing their capacity as leaders and better fulfilling their responsibility as people of influence. And how do you feel or what are your perspectives? Um, a lot of people now talk, well, we are working in a hybrid working environment, a combination mm -hmm. of remote working and in the office. There is here in Europe and I think in other parts of the globe, the discussions of having people back in the office, kind of highlighting the old command and control style. I need to see you in the office working, which is definitely not always the case, at least from my personal experience. It doesn't mean if someone is in the office, they're actually working. And so this individuality of people that where they can feel focused, creative and more productive in an environment that suits them, which is sometimes office, sometimes home, sometimes both. But... What are your views in terms of using hybrid working environment as perhaps as a excuse to, to not go back to basics and actually respecting each other as human beings and basic leadership skills that, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. is the technology that we are now using, is, is, does it really have such a uh, big negative impact on, on uh, collaboration? Technology is a tool and almost every tool can be used positively or negatively. Yeah. So look, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now in this way without technology. Thank goodness for it. And in many regards, the impact of the pandemic without the technology that we're talking about right now would have been absolutely devastating, perhaps even unimaginable what the state of global economies would be if we didn't have Zoom and the ability to now have a different format 
for work is not altogether a bad thing. It requires updating and adaptation. Change is hard is not just a phrase that people say. It really is. And the reason it's hard is because it's really hard. And many people, never mind certain kinds of organizations, have so many things that were established in a very particular way, altering that with some form of permanent and recreating or transforming not just the culture, but a way of conducting work uh, may require certain kinds of changes that haven't really been thought through or understood fully enough. And so it's just being seen as a, a technology element, which is much too limited because it's not. And I would say even the perspective that you added, which relates to that kind of command and control or a sort of tyrannical leadership of that's grounded in mistrust. I need to have you in the office so that I can actually supervise that you're doing your work is already the problem. The technology there is secondary. Organizations that can do work in a hybrid fashion and that can accommodate a new workforce, let's say, that's coming online, that's more accustomed to working in a hybrid environment and didn't grow up in only being in the office, there will need to be some kinds of adaptations made to their management philosophy, perhaps even to their perspective on how work happened and can't be such a stranglehold on uh, a return to the path, nor an abandonment of how things were just because you can do something differently. And it really does to, to emphasize, I think one of my core perspectives in, in how I work is really understanding deeply what your decisions are made of and trying to model out as well as, and as thoroughly as possible, what are the various consequences, not just adverse ones, but also beneficial yeah. to know yeah. if we do this, how is it going to sequence out and what will that be like? And then how do we prepare to, to establish that as something that's really workable? not just a blueprint that looks really great on paper. And how do you find that balance? Because when we feel stress, when you feel under pressure, if we're not accustomed to being comfortable with being uncomfortable, it can lead to negative thinking and limitations for seeing sure. the threats versus seeing the opportunities. Now, I am all for growth mindset. I'm all for embracing change. But I, like you, believe in grounded decision-making. And that fear is not our enemy, but our friend, because our emotions informs us. What would you ad advise or how do you work in balancing the, the staying realistic, but not falling in the trap of pessimism and moving from, or what's the ratio? What's the balance? I don't know if there is a ratio. In the, sometimes embracing limitations, sometimes we fix things that are not broken, uh, just because change management. To also understanding how our mind under pressure or negative thinking, negative emotions can lead to limitations and not seeing possibilities. Hindsight, we see, ah, yeah, thank God that happened. But in the moment, it's very difficult. It's very complex and there's no um, simple or grand formula or prescription I can offer uh, that, that this is how you do it. It depends, which is a lazy answer, although there's a tremendous amount of truth in it. 
it's also something that has to be customized to each situation and to the people who are involved. What people are frightened of, what triggers some form of avoidance or risk aversion, what stresses people out and to what degrees, um, what triggers some form of anxiety and how does that influence the decision that you gravitate towards or that alters the lens through which you might see something optimistically or pessimistically. But those are the details that matter. So in some regards, we're talking about turning the lights up more brightly so that it facilitates more self-awareness and greater and deeper thoughtfulness around why are you making these decisions or why do you think this and not that or some of the other kinds of under the surface or off the radar influences that uh, guide decision making invisibly oftentimes you don't understand why you're choosing to do one thing or another until you have right yeah. in a sentence trying to slow down time even if you're under pressure, right? Certain crisis situations require a reflective response or an immediate response, but not every situation is like that. And I always like to help people in position of extreme influence and in decision-making to take their time and to create more time and space when they can so that there's a deliberativeness and a depth to the risk forecasting and to the decision-making so that there's an opportunity to really build out from whatever the initial impulse might be, it may turn out to be the best one, but it's always good to know what are your options. Yeah, I love that because I also think it's important to practice assertiveness and being in your own body because after what happens, at least from my experience, is that you can not be stressed. I'm not easily stressed until I had a child. It's a whole different story. But I'm not easily stressed. But when you work with people who are stressing you out and then you catch up on their stress, it takes a lot of assertiveness. It takes a lot of diplomacy because people will look at you crazy. I remember I was doing some work and everyone was running around, uh, we say in tax chicken without heads. And I'm like, they're like, why are you so calm? I said, I've witnessed people exploding next to me. So not having a slide is not that urgent, but it immediately shifted their perspective. So I think often we can teach ourselves to just take a step back. Is this a false sense of stress threat? Is the world going to stop? Maybe other people will agree, but I think the more you exercise it, the better long-term decisions you will make. I, I could go on for hours, but we, we are approaching uh, the end. Uh, and I have a, a, an elevator approach that I use, which is based on 360 degree perspectives, looking at it from a first floor, second floor. So first floor is our perspective, second is the other one, third from a neutral, and then fourth from a business and fifth from a macro environment. We're not going to go in all of those floors, but I think the core foundation of these implementation to look at things from different perspectives is the ability to have empathy. And I argue and I teach and I live that empathy is a skill that we can learn. And it's not easy. It's often hard. Having empathy is a conscious effort, but I'd love to hear your views. Yeah. Empathy is 
a topic we could devote an entire conversation to being kind and compassionate and pro-social is enormously important. It would be a different world if more people could be and were. And certainly people in positions of influence and responsibility can truly create a better world and or contribute more to it being a better world if they can exercise those sorts of things. Empathy is a, a part of that, and those are a part of empathy, but it's also a different thing. So I look at empathy as something that's fundamentally made of emotions more than intellectuality. It's creative and it's imaginative. It's really, it's, a, it's about imagining what it's like for another person, not filtering another person's experience through what you think or how you feel. A lot of things that come under the heading of being empathic are really more empathistic in a sense. It's a kind of pseudo empathy because it's really moderated by this is how I would think. So I suppose you're probably thinking or feeling that too. It's a way of creating an, an equalization or identification with another. Real empathy is not about you at all. It's about the other person. And you can think about all kinds of things in order to achieve something that's empathic, but really it's about feeling something and not having how you feel dominate or obstruct. Yeah. That's a great explanation. One of the best explanation I've heard in a while is to really understand and to separate that it doesn't mean you need to have make a decision immediately based on that, but at least to understand that not everyone thinks or feels the way we do in any given situation. Thank you. Thank you, Alexander. Do you, before we close off, do you have any last takeaway you want to give to our audience, to leaders who are struggling with people challenges in the digital age? And then maybe close off on how people can find you and your widely published author in Forbes and uh, uh, CNN, and you write uh, a lot on this subject. And I, I find your work extremely fascinating. So maybe where people can find you and connect uh, with you as well. Thank you. Yeah. So there probably are no leaders who aren't challenged in various ways by people issues. Doesn't mean that they're in trouble uh, or, or that there are serious problems, but being a leader means working with and influencing other people. And I would emphasize one point that I've already made in this brief conversation regarding the importance as a significant element of leadership in terms of elevating self-awareness and foregrounding self-knowledge and knowledge of people uh, as a feature of excellent leadership. And then the other part would be poking a finger in the chest of the stigma against asking for help. And there are so many leaders uh, who come from this mold of achieving their pinnacle position through some kind of muscular effort that seems not to have involved being helped or asking for help, which is enormously difficult 
in itself. And really good leaders are not just mentors of others. They understand what it is to be mentored or to be guided and to remember, for example, that the people around you in your organization are probably not likely to be able to approach you as a leader with certain kinds of feedback or insight, even if they are designed in some kind of 360 that gives permission for it. There are a lot of inhibitors against really frank feedback on deep issues as a separate matter from whether or not people are actually capable of understanding what's going on. And so having an advisor who can speak truth to power and deliver really important packets of information about you, about the people you're working with, about the dynamics in your organization that is really scientifically based and neutral. In other words, not agenda driven with regard to outcomes, but really about optimizing what's happening to best effect for whatever your organization is trying to achieve is incredibly valuable. And that, I would say, is one of the arguments against calling it soft. It's not a soft skill at all. It's just a different type of skill. It's a different category of skill. Yeah. In terms of of reaching me, yes, I am on LinkedIn, both as me, Alexander Stein, Dr. Alexander Stein, and also Dolos Advisors. Um, There's dolosadvisors.com. And I do publish regularly, although episodically, in forums and am out in the world and very interested in interacting. So please be in touch and happy to answer questions or speak to these issues if people may be interested. Thank you. Thank you, Alexander, for enlightening us. Uh, I feel very inspired and have many aha moments, I think. I'll close with uh, one thing that uh, my key takeaway is is asking for help. I myself as a high achiever and, and I find it extremely difficult to ask for help. And I probably stuck or struggled much more than I should have if I had just asked for help. And I think you mentioning that reminds us, doesn't matter where you are at the ladder, we are still human beings. And asking for help does not show our vulnerability or doesn't show our weakness. I think vulnerability is important, but it's a strength because it's how we connect as well with each other. So thank you for reminding me and the audience for that. And thank you for being a guest and make sure you get in touch with Alexander and his follow his work. Thank you for tuning into the EQ Emotional Intelligence Elevator Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and gained valuable insights into the world of emotional intelligence. To learn more about Thrive with EQ and Nadia's mission to build stronger, more resilient workplaces through higher levels of emotional intelligence, visit our website at thrivewitheq.com. You'll find a plethora of EQ leadership resources, tools, and services to help you and your organization thrive. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends and colleagues. As always, keep thriving with EQ.